When will Ryan Gosling grow into a goose? Do midwives unblock their toilets with Avon tubes? Well, I'm starting this show happy, Helen, because we have a question from a man called Graham. Do you have very positive associations with Grahams? Um, Cinnamon Grahams. Golden. Uh, Any of the Grahams. It is basically the Breakfast Cereal Association, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Right. It makes me think of childhood. Well, now I'm thinking this Graham that's written to us is covered in cinnamon. (laughs) (laughs) In his own cinnamon challenge of being. Revolting. Mm -hmm. So I I always think of uh, Graham from Canada, who was an early uh, questionnaire. Yes. Graham from Canada, he was a prolific questionnaire in about 2008 when i think he was age 12 but we still get people asking what happened to graham from canada as if he'd been keeping tabs on him for the following seven years yeah exactly his balls dropped he grew up (laughs) i presume discovered sex although he didn't discover it he discovered it for himself discovered him graham from newcastle says i'm currently cleaning out my attic in preparation for moving house Mm. hey i bet that's triggering happy memories in both of you both in terms of the move and the fact that you do now live in an attic attic, i can really relate to you graham Uh, he says there's a lot of stuff in there that i don't know what to do with it's actually, uh, like for me, my attic is an almost metaphysical space. Like, I, really? Like stuff goes up there and it's like it never existed. That's how I feel about my freezer. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen your freezer and I believe it. <laughs> well, uh, Graham is faced with a lot of shit in an attic. I hear you, Graham. The thing that's got me struggling most is what I'd estimate as 70 to 80 VHS tapes. Ah. They're a mix, he says, of bought blank... That's great that people keep the blank ones. Well, you never know when they might be handy. They might come back. It'd be so infuriating if a good film was on the telly and all the blank tapes were full and you couldn't record over them because someone had written, do not over record. Is this just my family that's coming out? Uh, A mix of those, he says, and film and TV box sets, which is fair enough. I had a complete Indiana Jones. Right. And Well, it wasn't complete, of course, because then they made Kingdom of the Crystal Bullshit. But when when it was (laughs) bought, it was the complete Indiana Jones set. Yeah. And I didn't want to throw that away because it was beautifully done. The box set itself was was delightfully drawn with with a hand-drawn thing of indie on the front that's a very video thing i think of that kind of artwork where it it's like a a very colorful Mm. sketch that someone's done well you think with dvds they went more for just the i guess they could have the high-res photographs better reproduced couldn't they yeah and then something like stranger things came back to that visual style Mm. i um, it's a different world isn't it like i can't remember the last time i taped something off the telly but i remember distinctly doing that a lot Mm. especially as a teenager it was like oh this is a movie that channel 4 is showing that like is a weird American indie movie that I won't be able to get anywhere mm. else or like a like a you know like a Tom Waits movie or something that's like no one's going to sell me this because back in the day the day being the 90s that you're talking about you couldn't just get everything that ever been made whenever you wanted at the touch of yeah. a button so you had to be vigilant with your videoing didn't you yeah if you wanted to watch the sex scene from Casino you had to Put record it and pause it Graham continues I generally try to recycle resell or donate as much as possible so I'm not crazy about sending all my redundant belongings to landfill but I can't think of a way in which these videotapes would be useful to anyone in a post-Netflix world. I'd say we're in a Netflix world. I don't think we're yeah. post-Netflix We're certainly yet. post-DVD, aren't we? We're, yes, exactly, mm. yes. We, we've gone past pre-Netflix. We're in a post-pre-Netflix world. <laughs> so Helen, answer me this. Uh, what should I do with my old VHS tapes? That is really difficult because now charity shops are not that keen on them. And in fact, when former flatmate of the show Matthew Crosby moved out in 2009, he ended up just binning two big sacks full because the charity shops were like wasting our time and space. Me too. What's that service called that's not CD Wow and not Moon Pig, oh, but like a yeah. combination of the two? Is that where you like send off things and they give you four quid back for 100 DVDs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. CD Genie or something. Yeah. 
I use that service to give away a whole load of DVDs that were effectively doorstops. Will they accept videotapes? No. You type in the barcode of each DVD, and most of them were worth about 12 pence. Occasionally, there'd be like a rare Woody Allen one or something. They'd be like 7.99, and I'd be like, hey, but of course that meant that really I could have got 40 quid for it on eBay. But yeah, no VHS is accepted. Also, VHS are very difficult to recycle because they have a lot of materials and chemicals in them that are environmentally horrific. So... There might be a local scheme in Newcastle, sorry Graham, I didn't check, do some work yourself, um, that will dismantle and recycle some of them for you. Most of them aren't free though, because they are so difficult to dispose of. But some VHS do carry quite a big cash value, especially uh, films that were never released on DVD or electronically, so quite a lot of video nasties. Mm. You can get hundreds of pounds for if you're lucky. I think there might be retronauts who perhaps are setting up a retronaut bar or cafe that would love that for the decor. Yes. Keep an eye out for that, Graham. They probably don't even need the tapes then, do they? They just need the boxes. No, but give them the tapes so you don't have to deal with them separately. It'll be be like the equivalent of in the 80s when you went to an American bar in a retail park somewhere in England. It would always have propellers on the wall. You think, where the fuck do these propellers come from? There's no way this many light aircraft crashed into Hertfordshire. But I think now you're having businesses opened up by people who don't, even really remember the VHS era because they are too young, hmm. I think this might be gold to them. <laughs> Here's a question from Anonymous from Bude who says, I've been popped onto a waiting list for the opportunity of a lifetime to spend six weeks on an island in the middle of nowhere, all expenses paid, having the time of my life. A one-time experience. Uh, if this is being cast in MTV's X on the Beach, do not do it. <laughs> it is not worth it. The only problem is that I am supposed to be maid of honour for my best friend's wedding during this time away. Her one-time experience. Hmm. She has already bought my dress and everything else for the wedding. I haven't yet spoken to her about this as the official offer hasn't been fully confirmed. I'm worried that it's going to really upset her if I decide to go. No, really? Do you think? I can't see why. So answer (laughs) me this, Ollie. What do I do? What you have to do is you have to weigh up what's more important, your friendship with this person or your desire to spend six weeks on an island as a one-time experience. And actually, there is a legitimate case for both those things, isn't there? But you have to be honest with yourself. There's no point pretending if you choose the island that you haven't chosen the island over your friend. You are going to have to explain to your friend why you're not going to her wedding and she is going to demote you down the friend list afterwards. Yes, maid of honour. Yeah. That is a a very high up position. Yeah. So uh, it's not just the finances of your dress. I think, to be honest, you could have other island experiences, but your friend probably won't have that many weddings, hopefully, because hopefully this will be the one that, you know, the marriage that lasts a lifetime. I think unless you don't really care about this friendship, you you have to go. But six weeks, though. That's a really that's a really long who can afford or spend the time to go away for 6 weeks. Well, she says I've been popped onto a waiting list for yes. the opportunity of a lifetime. So what it, does that mean? Uh, okay. So yes. if, if you've entered a prize draw, then you've entered a prize draw knowing that it was the same time as your friend's wedding. Mm. So that will hurt. Unless you entered the prize draw and then your friend fixed the date of her wedding. Right. So again, we don't know the time scale of both these events. So that's part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's like, you know, you work for whatever, the Institute of Fish, and <laughs> and they have a position in Tobago, which you can spend six weeks looking at fish, and, and they've put you on the shortlist, and it was your boss's decision or something like that. Yeah. That's that's slightly more mm. justifiable, isn't it? Yeah, or if the island is Tristan de Kuna, and the boats only go there once every few months. Even then, 
And she might really want you there. It's a big day of her life that is stressful and she might need your emotional support. Mm. Um, but fuck but you can do that island. from an island. Yeah, just Skype. Skype exists. Yeah. Well, if there's Wi-Fi, she hasn't mentioned how, how connected the island is. I had a best man and if he had said this to me, I probably wouldn't have minded, but then I hadn't bought him a dress mm. or any garments. And I think I had a more... Uh, I had a more lackadaisical attitude towards the wedding and its components. Like, nothing was too irreplaceable, except for Martin, obviously. However... <laughs> Martin had been like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm off to Bermuda. I've just yeah. had this offer I can't refuse. I've been offered uh, six days in the Isle of Man. Sorry, <laughs> I, I just right. can't say no to this. <laughs> I'll go for the first reserve. <laughs> in the event of you actually getting picked for this opportunity, is it worth discussing it with the bride? Or is that just making it a lot more awkward? Well, I suppose the truth is if you do discuss it with the bride in a kind of like, oh, this is a surprise. I mean, don't ever play her this podcast, but this is a surprise. I've just been put on this list and it's such a great opportunity. But of course, I'm going to say no because yeah. it's your wedding. Oh. I mean, it's a no brainer. I love this sliminess you're putting on. It's <laughs> of working Of course, I'm going to say no. Um, but, you know, I just I just wanted you to know that I am passing up that opportunity. That She will then feel obliged nah. to say, no, of course you can go. Yeah, but then she won't mean it. Like, no, she'll, she'll still hate you forever. Into it. Definitely, yeah. yeah. And then she'll be like, secretly thinking, why do you even consider it? Why are you even telling me about this? Yeah. Mm. So I think, I think you have to err on the side of the bride. Although my inclination would be towards the island, personally, <laughs> probably. Um, so I don't feel like we've helped solve this question particularly but i'm dying to know what you do decide yeah we've an- we've answered it we haven't we solved tried. it we're not called solve me this uh, if, if anything we can just deepen the problem by making <laughs> you think about it even more if you've got a question then email your question to answer me this podcast at googlemail.com answer me this podcast at googlemail.com answer me this Here's a question from Anthony who says, After a bear has finished hibernating, does it need to do a big poo? If so, I'm assuming this would be in the woods. Not all bears live in woods. I've woken up, do I go for a poo? Right, let's go for it. Right, got to dial back to just before the bears start to hibernate. They're mm. emptying their stomachs because they're sensible. Mm. So for a few days, they don't really eat much, but they do eat roughage. So indigestible stuff like bark or pine needles, and they lick bits of their own fur. And then that, plus mucus, forms a plug in their lower intestine. That's meaning no- very clever. It is clever, meaning nothing is going to leak out into the bedding that they're sleeping in for weeks or months and nothing can crawl in. So like an ant's not going to make a nest up there. This plug forms um, and then their stomachs shrivel down um, for the hibernation. The metabolism slow down, all of that. And then when they wake up for spring, uh, they go out of their dens and just outside of their dens or just inside if they can't wait that long, they uh, crap out the plug, which can be a foot long. Wow. Yeah. So not only so the answer is yes, they do go and do a big poo, but not just a big poo, a massive yeah. epic deplugging, tappens I think they're called, or fe- fecal plugs. It's a bit like um you remember that joke in in the first Austin Powers movie when Austin is first defrosted and that's the first thing he does is go for a really long piss which right. you know, oh, yes, the joke being we can all relate to that, that waking joke's, up. That joke's still going right now. It's still, such a long piss. It's a good, <laughs> it's a good joke. Um but it's the bit that's left out, isn't it, very often of those films. You know, like Sleeping Beauty, for example, yep. when she wakes up. 24, Jack Bauer never pisses and shits. Well, he doesn't go as far as I can 
tell for a very prolonged period but you're right across the course of the season maybe he's gone 24 hours without a piss yeah. he, he is on heroin in series three which i gather has a costive effect right all the things we don't see hey hey it's nick from st albans me and my boy casper were just wondering uh, a blue whale is the biggest animal in the world and so how big are its turds? Now, most of the facts that I learned about whales at SeaWorld have been widely discredited recently, but I don't remember this even being on the menu. Unbelievable, because kids who are a big market of aquariums and stuff also very interested in how animals shit. Probably quite happy to go to the Baby Shamu gift shop and buy themselves a massive plushy turd. Yeah. yeah it's a missed <laughs> opportunity. Uh, but it is very hard to measure a blue whale's shit because it is runny. And it's so, in the water. Yeah, so it's just like this huge rusty red coloured turd cloud right, yeah. that billows mm. out behind them but it has lumps in it um, and according to a photographer who took the YouTube video Blue Whale Poop Floats in Ocean those lumps are about the size of a palm uh-huh. of your hand uh, and it's red because uh, blue whales mostly eat krill which is very rich in iron mm-hmm. um, yeah. but this means that whale shit is 10 million times richer in iron than the surrounding seawater and therefore it is a very valuable source of iron for phytoplankton which mm. traps CO2 in the sea and stopping it uh, going into the atmosphere. So whale Amazing. shit is an extremely valuable resource of that and other nutrients to the ocean, uh, nitrogen, etc. And also because the whales are bottom feeders and then they shit fairly near the surface usually, they're redistributing uh, the chemicals and nutrients of the ocean. Uh, so they haven't all just drifted down to the bottom and stayed there. Now there's this new government advice, isn't there, that we should all be taking vitamin D tablets because of iron deficiencies. Whale shit, that's where it's at. I just wonder, you know, for people live, listening in Scotland to this right now, it is plausible, isn't it, that they might be able to find a local source of iron-rich turd in the sea around them? I wonder what's the best way to capture it because that's it is going to be very diluted with seawater. You'd have to farm them and then that comes with its own internal no, you problems. No, can't. Don't yeah. farm a whale. Yeah. Do you think that's what Popeye eats? What, and masks it as spinach? Yeah. We know spinach doesn't, doesn't have that much iron in it. That was a misnomer, wasn't it? Popeye didn't know that. I mean, it's like he's like those guys you see at the gym who's, who like taking steroids and tell you that they're great too. He looks good on it, but you yeah. know, we don't know the long-term repercussions. For Maybe he just works out a lot. Well, it's time to take a little break now in this episode uh, for today's intermission. A break in which you could, if you wanted, go for a shit. You could. It's probably not long enough unless you have a very rapid bowel. Oh, sure, if you're listening in real time. But, of course, you know, you could pause. But then I guess that's the same with any point in the podcast, isn't it? If you really needed a crap, you could have gone at any point in the last five minutes discussion about defecating. To be honest, the intermission isn't so much the opportunity for you to use it like an ad break and leave the room and go and boil the kettle and have a shit. It's more an intermission from the present to revisit the past in the form of a little snippet of uh, a retro episode of Answer Me This. And here's a little bit of Answer Me This episode 86. Uh, from early 2009 and you can buy that and all of our first 200 episodes uh, on our special website answermethisstore.com this is mike from belfast helen and ollie answer me this if testicles operate better at lower temperatures does this mean that eskimos would be incredibly fertile I would find this ironic since their population numbers are dwindling. His, his question is based on fundamental misunderstanding of the situation. It's not as if you get more sperm at a lower temperature, you get more sperm at about 20 degrees and your body's at 37. So if you go to minus 40, now you're not going to get loads and loads of sperm and massive testicles. Hey, don't be patronising to our listeners, especially well, he asked a Mike from Belfast, question. who's a very special man. Secondly, the, the, population, respect. the population of a community is not solely dependent on how much sperm you've got in your just fucking you, shorts, well, you dick-obsessed. Just because you've written ten books about the penis, Martin. 
listeners, please do leave us questions on our voicemail service, and this is the number. Or you can Skype answer me this. Hi, it's Dave and Claire from Newark. We are sitting down to a traditional Friday night chip supper, and we were wondering... Who dis who decided to mush peas? When was the first pea mushed? Why are mushy peas even a thing? Well, mushed pulses is not a new innovation. Look at hummus. Yes. Or peas pudding. Isn't it interesting? Hummus, immediately you've reached for something that's seen in this country, although actually something that's served in sort of every cheap supermarket in the country now, mm-hmm. still seen as an aspirational middle-class food. Mushy peas, very blue-collar, isn't it? And yet they are both mushed pulses. I've never really thought about it like that. In your view... Should mushy peas be the sort of Nigella, Jamie mushy pea where you put in loads of garlic and olive oil? Or do you think the traditional chippy mushy pea is actually what you need? It's a bit boring. It's all umami and no trousers, isn't it, mushy peas? Oh, that's going to be controversial. I think some people would put some mint in there. Oh, yes, I like it with a bit of mint. Anyway, do you have any idea who actually first in the fish and chip environment said, this is what you need, battered fish, deep fried chips, mushed pulses? No idea why it is ubiquitous with the fish and chips i'll tell you what i think it is i think of it as greens yeah you know you're you're brought up aren't you on sort of meat two veg one of them green a lot of them are dyed green no mm. yeah because marrow fat peas from which mushy peas are made they are left to grow longer on the pea plant and they start to dry while they're before they're picked you soak them and then simmer them at which point they start to mush themselves they don't hold their shape after cooking they mush down to a kind of greeny grey colour. And so then, because people are like, oh no, it's got to be green, they they dye it. And there's quite a lot of controversy as to whether that should be allowed because that was supposed to be banned, but then all the purveyors of those were like, you're just going to tank the mushy pea market. Fun fact I found out about marrow fat peas, though. I can't handle another one. Then. No, you can. You can, no, you can definitely handle this one. I've only got rid of my brain for no, one it's marrow fun, fat. Right, well, discard the last one and just hold in this one. Okay. Marrow fat peas that are mushy peas yeah. are also the same peas they use for wasabi peas. Fuck off. No, I That's won't. Good. Wow. Yes. That's a versatile snacking pea. Yeah. Oh, I'd eat wasabi mushy peas. I, I, I think that'd be delicious. Have, uh, on, on, on a bit of fish, yeah. yeah. I bet like Nobu does that. Do you know, this year has been designated the International Year of Pulses by the UN. <laughs> <laughs> Can um, you feel it? Uh, <laughs> and, until you said by the UN, I assumed you were going to say by, by the, the International, International Board. Of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who, frankly, have got nothing better to do than yeah. sit around and come up with that as their big idea. Well, the UN has always been very good at giving peas a chance. <laughs> Hi, this is Jacob, Samuel and Sarah here at Barry Island. We're just sat by the beach having some candy floss and we want to know who invented it and how did they know it would work with spin sugar. They've been heating up sugar and then sculpting things with it, including very long, thin tendrils for a very long time. Yeah, but spinning it at great speed. I mean, I know you can never really know for certain who first did a thing that's that basic. It's like saying who first realised you could cook a chicken and make it taste nicer than the thing that gives you salmonella poisoning. Um, you well, know. it was the day the chicken ran into the fire and <laughs> started smelling tasty. Well, well, this is the thing. So in retrospect, it seems obvious. In retrospect, it's easy to say, oh, well, spun sugar. But I mean, it's a weird thing to do. You know, you've got this natural sweetener that you've already processed to then spin it very, very fast doesn't seem to me to be like an obvious thing to do. Maybe they span all the foods fast and the rest of them didn't work. So yeah, exactly, didn't like spun them. rice. Probably horrible. Someone must have invented the thing that whirls it around and then they put the stick in it and um, it gets cotton candy gathered onto it. And I'm assuming that there was a certain commercial imperative to do that because then you could make 
a small amount of sugar into a large food stuff and then charge a massive markup on it. Yeah, you're telling me. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, believe it or not, a dentist who first Oh my God. Oh, wow, oh, he's wait, creating the demand. Way to line your own pocket there. <laughs> exactly. Isn't that basically insider trading? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it was a guy called William Morrison and his friend, the confectioner, John C. Wharton. Uh, and it was 1904 that they first introduced machine-spun cotton candy, as wow. it is now known. Does how does it um, how does it work? Is it really really hot sugar, or is it just like sugar syrup dissolved in water? It's heated in the spinner. Okay, so it's oh. heated, like molten yeah. caramel, basically. Yes, but normal sugar in centrifugal force brings cotton candy out. That science, kids. <laughs> um, but it was originally marketed as fairy floss. Uh, right. At the World's mm. Fair 1904. Not a bad name. I mean, you can sort yeah. of see it looks a bit like um, sort of something Tinkerbell would shit out, doesn't it? I think fairy floss or candy floss are more appetising than cotton candy because the idea of having a mouthful of cotton is yeah. quite unpleasant. But floss. Like floss, like when, when else do we use dentist, floss? He was a dentist, Martin. Yes. He was yeah, a dentist. but you're not going to floss your teeth with it, are you? I've had pork floss at Vietnamese restaurants. That's, wow. where, they, that's where they shred fine pork fats. Sell um, that at the circus. Anyway, point being, uh, yes, there was a massive profit margin on it then. Uh, they sold 68,655 boxes at the World Fair. Right. Uh, they charged 25 cents per box. Um, now, in today's money, that's equivalent to about five pounds a box. Um, and uh, that's, you know, quite a large profit. It's a good return. Um, and yet, believe it or not, it took until 1978 for someone to come up with an automated machine that does the process. Whoa, until really? then, some, some idiot had to stand there with the stick and feed it in like you see at fairs. Ah. That's, you'd really think someone would industrialise that process in a country that values sugary products that much. But they still have the manual stick putters oh, now, yes. because I suppose it's a bit theatrical to yeah, see exactly. this bare stick suddenly becoming like a little fluffy tree. Same with popcorn, I've, isn't it? I don't think I've ever seen that. You haven't? What? No, I don't think I've been to a place where they make it. I've oh only no, s- you've only seen it in bags. Yeah. Oh, the Midlands Aww. is deprived, isn't it? I really, I really want to eat some... Some candy floss now. No, you don't. Like the, eating candy it. floss is so pointless. Why that. do you love it? Because because you bite into it and it's got that fluffy texture, and then the texture changes just from the magic of your saliva. But it doesn't taste great. It tastes like sugar. It's great. I mean, I'm glad to have you represent like yeah, probably the, the average listener because actually it's, you, you like, don't like it either. You say sherbet dib dabs on the radio, and everyone like comes. I've always just found <laughs> Is that it. your secret for a happy audience? <laughs> now get fizzing happy like a finish. sherbet dib dab. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, I just don't because I'm not a sweet. I'm more of a savoury guy. Well, I mean, I, I would basically eat anything. Yeah, yeah, but I'd much to. rather someone was doing like olive kebabs for three pounds than or, cotton candy. Or my pork floss plan. Or your pork floss, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, you've upstaged me with your uh, UN-backed <laughs> yeah. day of uh, mushy peas, um, but. <laughs> but um, uh, there is a national cotton candy day. Oh, is it into... NATO who declared it or something? <laughs> <laughs> it's all packed. Um, it, it's only in the United States. Doesn't um, surprise me. They get all the days. But National Cotton Candy Day is December the seventh. So if you're really mm. into it, mm. I presume there are special events that you can look up you're that getting, day. You're getting too close to candy cane and gingerbread days, then I think. Well, yeah, and Christmas generally. I think cotton candy mm. could could have its day in summer. Mm. No, but that's the whole point, isn't it? People buy lots of candy floss in the summer. The point is to create a day in December when otherwise cotton candy sales would be down. Well, what about February? That's a bleak month and Uh, it's not Christmas. I'm with you. I like reading but not while I'm driving. Apparently that's illegal. I want to listen to Richard Dawkins reading Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle. 
goal. Me too. Well, now we can do that, and I'll keep my license by signing up for a free audiobook. Let's go to answermethispodcast.com/slash/audible and have a look now. Yes, you still have an opportunity to get a free audiobook if you haven't already done so. Thank God, because I am a late adopter of things, so I still haven't got around to it yet. (laughs) And remember, if you do take up our free audiobook trial through our friends at Audible, then they give us some thank you money as well. That is the best kind of friendship. Exactly. Thanks, Audible. (laughs) You're supporting this show, you're getting free content for your ears, you can do it with your Amazon account and it's really, really quick, and then you can cancel your trial membership if you don't want to join up to Audible. There are no losers here. You're a bit of a loser. Thanks, Thanks, Martin. You did leave yourself open to that, Ollie. You should have seen that coming. There are tens of thousands of different books, and to take up this offer, you just need to go to answermethispodcast.com slash audible. Here's a question from Alex in Manchester, who says, in a lot of old films, married couples are shown as having separate beds. Mm -hmm. The most recent example I can think of is that terrible BBC Agatha Christie adaptation involving David Walliams. Didn't see it. Could be several. So your example is useless to me, Alex. Okay, I'm thinking of, like... Brief Encounter or oh, I, know I Love Lucy. Yeah, we yeah, we know the image. Yeah. Like quilted headboards, yeah. very narrow little beds with yeah. a nightstand in between. In Sybil, all... Sybil and Basil. Yes. And in all fairness, in Alex's example, the couple didn't seem to like each other much. So Ollie, answer me this. Did married couples actually sleep in separate beds in the 1950s or was it just shown this way to protect the decency of the viewing public? Mm-hmm. And if they did sleep in separate beds, Why? Once you're married, even the Victorians acknowledged it was okay to do the nasty. Only if children were begat. Were <laughs> double beds more expensive? Well, that's fanciful, isn't it? I'd imagine that two single beds would cost more than one double bed. Yeah, or at least the same. I mean, then you've got to get all the two separate duvets, all of that. Have you ever been in a hotel where they don't have a double bed and then they push two single beds together? Oh, yeah. So many times. So, oh, it's so, so awful, isn't times. it? Even when you call down, you say to the reception, no, 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 I want a double bed. They're like, it's okay, someone will come up, push the beds together. You're yeah. like, oh, I'm no going to be falling down that mm. crack for next week. Oh, no good at Terrible. all. Terrible. Yeah, and Martin and I recently stayed in a hotel in Norway, which had a proper double bed, mm-hmm. but single duvets. That was okay. okay. Felt, that was you okay were very dubious at the beginning, I but think you came around to it. Well, I yeah. felt a bit, a bit lonely for a while. Yeah. But, um... but uh, then you got a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So let's deal with both parts of this question. They, they weren't allowed to show anything as lascivious as double bed sharing, were they? Exactly. So on TV? in the specific issue of in the 50s, uh, was it to protect the decency of the viewing public? The answer to that is yes. Mm. Um, uh, in America anyway... Uh, I'm sure in Europe they could show whatever the fuck they wanted apart from in Britain. And, and in Britain, even showing a bed would be dangerously arousing. <laughs> well, actually, that's not too far off what the rules were oh, in America, no. um, which is why in Hollywood films, like you'd indicate, I think, is it uh, Casablanca that ends with a cigarette? What's the film that ends with a cigarette? Bogart and Bacall. One of those films ends with a cigarette to show that they've just had sex. Oh, like, that's right. as risque as they could get. Right. But there was a production code. It was called the Hayes Code, a motion picture production code which actually regulated exactly what they could show on screen uh, and it was things like outside of the bedroom uh, revenge shall not be justified mm-hmm. uh, the use of liquor when not required by the plot will not be shown uh, <laughs> obscenity in word gesture reference song joke or by suggestion is forbidden um, so yeah it was pretty draconian although lots mm-hmm. of clever filmmakers found ways around it yeah. basically from the 1930s to the mid 60s anything that was shown on screen had to make concessions for this code which said you can't have a couple lying in bed together so yeah. that's why in I Love Lucy famously even though they're a married couple even though they'd make jokes on the sitcom about the fact they were a married couple and in separate beds 
they were always in separate beds. And in I Love Lucy, there was almost a running gag about how they couldn't show them in bed together. Right. Because there was an episode where they and their neighbours, the other couple, can't remember their name, all go on holiday together and they're in a European ski villa or whatever. And there's two double beds there mm-hmm. and there's a joke made about the fact that they have to separate them and sleep in separate parts of the room. Okay. So, yes, it was a code on telly. But if the plot justified it, would they be able to show the feats of athleticism that allowed them to have sex bridging the gap between the <laughs> twin beds? Um, yes, if it was based on a novel. <laughs> so you can justify all kinds of things in films oh, if really? you can say, oh, but in the book from 1750, this clearly happens. So in the book, if they were sleeping in the same bed, would that be allowed to be shown? Yeah, so for example, I think the king and the queen sharing a bed, if that's written about in a you know yeah. royal history, right, right. that's okay. And yet that was less likely to happen because historically rich people didn't even share rooms and still then, the case queen and prince philip still yeah. don't share a bed well i wouldn't share a bed with prince philip <laughs> no, would I. especially now you can just imagine the smell in his room can't you that kind of uh, yeah 90 year old man in a bed smell. cigar and pee i'm thinking yes yeah. dog as well <laughs> but at the same time people who weren't rich aristocrats because beds and space were expensive the whole family would share a bed or even a pile of hay and often in the same room as they kept the livestock so that they could all keep warm and they might only have one room in which to live and do everything anyway. Okay, but not by the 1950s. No one was sleeping in a hay bale by then. No, but in, till, Britain. Like in Britain, till the early 20th century, it was common for the whole family to, to sleep together. Yeah, and, yeah. and all through the time when they were only showing on screen couples in separate beds, they were in real life probably not sleeping that way. They were probably in double beds. But also to tackle the question of if they did sleep in separate beds, why? Uh, sometimes people chose that and they're yeah. for reasons that actually have yet to be disproved. I mean, sleep disturbance mm-hmm. was deemed to be a major cause of depression and stroke and heart disease and respiratory failure. And even though now we've got medical things to help with all of that stuff, um, that doesn't mean that necessarily sleeping in a bed with someone else helps. Mm. I mean, when, when you have a baby, they suggest specifically you do not share that bed with the baby because you're going to breathe all over the baby and share the Well, air. also, I mean, it can be dangerous because you can roll over and Yeah, yeah, but it's not just that. It is. It, there's all kinds of things to do with sharing a bed with someone which kind of indicate we're not quite, you know, designed or evolved to do. But also, osteopathically, a double bed will sag in the middle, whereas a single bed yeah. can't really... So you might have a less disturbed sleep. However, studies have also shown that couples who share a bed will communicate better and they experience other benefits like increased levels of oxytocin, which can reduce inflammation. Hmm. Of what? The inflamed parts. Here's a historical practice that I uh, had never heard of before called bundling. In 18th, 19th century Britain and the Netherlands, and I think the practice crossed over to certain parts of the USA, courting couples were encouraged to share a bed, but they were discouraged from having sex. So they were bundled into like either very tightly wound blankets or a sack that was tied around their necks. So they could snuggle up together without doing it. Huh. Can you imagine? I'm, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Be like being on a camping trip with somebody yeah. and trying to avoid hypothermia. There probably is someone who fetishizes that exact thing, actually, isn't there? Yeah. Sleeping bags. Something for everyone, isn't yeah, yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Here's a question from Lillian in Washington State who listens to our podcast whilst jogging. Uh, she says, I've been using a Fitbit for a couple of years and recently, when I've participated in 5 to 10 kilometre races, I've noticed slight discrepancies with official times and Fitbit times. I've had instances when my Fitbit showed me that I jogged faster than a car and climbed a hundred plus staircases when I obviously had not. Ollie answered me this. How were races timed in the past before GPS and how accurate are or were timers? Uh, Okay, well, the first bit first, uh, 
ever since the 1980s they've been using technology in marathons and stuff because um transponders are much better at uh, measuring large groups of people before mm-hmm. that it had to be done stopwatches basically which isn't mm-hmm. very accurate so now it is more accurate because they can use some sort of electronic means which is now personal gps on each runner to track you um so before that it was just it was just stopwatches let's deal with the interesting bit of this to me which is the dependability of fitbit um because there is actually a lawsuit about this very thing being prepared at the moment what i'm about to read out is the research from the scientists who were commissioned by the person who's brought the lawsuit so you can slightly treat it with a pinch of salt certain bias um and fitbit you know adamantly deny it and say that their products work well, However, they really have to, don't they? They cannot <laughs> admit that their product does not work. Correct. However, uh, it is California State Polytechnic University in Pomona uh, had given 43 subjects Fitbits uh, and got them to run and jog and jump rope. Uh, and this is for the heartbeat measurement rather than the running measurement. Mm-hmm. But on heartbeats, during moderate to high-intensity exercise, the sensor on the Fitbit was off by an average of 19 beats a minute. That seems quite big. Yeah. I mean, considering that they're being sold as sort of quasi-medical devices, that's not an ideal piece of research. Now, like I say, that is heartbeats and not steps. And Fitbit would say, well, you know, the heartbeat is just a feature. Really, we're a step monitor. In general, it seems to be that Fitbit is very good at measuring when you're not moving at all. So it's it's very good at measuring the rest. Like Mm. it gets that right. My resting heartbeat is all I need to know from my Fitbit. But yeah, but it's not so hot at logging exercise for a whole variety of reasons because it's quite complicated to do that. I'd imagine that is quite difficult because especially you're wearing a Fitbit on your wrist, aren't you? There's a lot of movement there that might be inconsequential that it counts as exercise. Yeah, exactly. I, there's an obvious thing I could say there, but I'm not going oh. to for the sake of our listeners. That uh, burns a lot modesty. of calories, Ollie, don't I? Yeah, yeah. Um, it all counts. But you see, I think what this comes down to is Fitbit are selling a fitness device. So they say, track the amount of steps you're doing and then improve on your steps. Actually, if they were to accurately reflect the product, Mm -hmm. they'd say, see how much of a couch potato you are. Monitor just how sedentary (laughs) you're being. Mm. It's Fatbit. It tells you you how often you're sitting down. And that's what it does very, very accurately, apparently. So how often, but but not by how much you are not sitting down. Yeah, exactly. And... it would still work as it because effectively it's a placebo isn't it it's it's saying do more exercise or do less exercise it's generally telling you well, the watched the kettle effect isn't it it's like you know yeah. when, when you go on any kind of diet you're thinking about what you're eating so you eat better yeah and it, if you accept that that's the reason you're doing it basically to have a psychological prompt to keep fit yeah then it's cheaper than a gym membership isn't it so i don't have a problem with it but i think mm. in truth that is what it is i actually recently cancelled my gym membership once and for all wow um, and when did you start it about five plus years ago no no this is more recent uh, uh-huh. so this, this is since you moved out of london three-ish years ago it, i was tempted by the offer alan of course you always are the offer was you can't resist a discount three days trial i thought what no strings attached it says so on the flyer they're always strings um so i went and the string <laughs> uh, i think her name was katie she was very very good um well that's why she's got the job she has she has yes she's in sales mm-hmm. um it was only on reflection afterwards once i'd passed over my credit card details that I realised it was unusual for a 21-year-old with a sports science degree to be so interested in the industry of podcasting. But oh, there you are. She was a very good salesperson. so. <laughs> so um, you know, she was chatting to me and she was really good and she showed me around and she said, join now and we can do it for half price. And, uh, you know, she said, have you ever worked for the BBC? I told her as a broadcast, I said, yes. She goes, oh, we've got a deal with the BBC. Uh, we can give you another 20% off. Right. Uh, so I fraudulently claimed a membership of the BBC. You've still got a pass. Discount scheme. Uh, but it was still £58 a month. Ooh. 
which you know, yeah. might have been down from 85. Do you think she added 20% for every lie you told? <laughs> that seems like a lot. Like, if, if you really were getting 50% off or whatever, that's a very expensive gym. So, uh, the bill came through after a year. Uh, yeah. For £696. And how many times had you been? Six times. Okay, so that's over 100 quid a time. Uh, it, it was £99.42 pence a time. So maybe I'd been seven times. I did the math. Right. If I'd wanted to, I could have gone for a swim at the Savoy Hotel <laughs> and had a massage for £99.42 pence really? every time I went to my shit local gym in St Albans. <laughs> so there you are. Fitbit would have been cheaper than that, wouldn't it? Would have just told me I was sitting down too much. And you know what? Or would wanking be... a lot. And you... <laughs> and you know what would have been even cheaper than that? Go Common on. sense. <laughs> it's free but priceless. Helen, how many minutes should I bake a cake for before it gets all burned and dry? Ollie, how many onions can Sausages would you like for your evening meal? If you answer me these, I'll be very pleased. That describes how I feel. Here's a question from Mark who says, Helen, answer me this. What is the best way to stop strangers talking to you on a plane? Not being a flight attendant as a job. <laughs> uh, actually, I'm glad this question is going to be answered by you, Helen, because you have a lot of experience with this. Strangers what, being antisocial? Oh my God, yeah. yeah. They do love me, strangers. Uh, Mark says, I'm going on holiday to Portugal and I haven't been on a plane for five years. Oh, so the plane people will be anxious to catch up. Yeah, I don't quite know the relevance of that. It would be relevant if he was about to say, you know, and I'm frightened of flying or something, so I don't want to be talking, but he doesn't go on to say that. He doesn't, right, okay. I think it's more just that he wants to enjoy the experience without having to talk Uh to someone he doesn't know Uh, he says my daughter will be sitting on my right and my wife and son will be sitting in front of us Mm -hmm. Uh, so i feel sorry for the person who is sitting next to you but yeah it's a real mark power block in that area of the plane isn't it? someone's the gooseberry Uh, (laughs) i need some way he says to discourage the stranger who will be sat on my left not to talk to me big earring that says fuck off on it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i've heard smiling a lot as they take their seat whilst holding and pointing to a bible works wonders I mean, not on everybody, because some people are like, oh, it's a great book. I read it all the time. Yeah, especially on the way to Portugal, Catholic country. Good point. Get into a lot of Bible chat. I, on the way here, actually, to this recording, took the Thameslink, and there was a man who went on the back door of the train carriage with me and then proceeded to look under every single seat as if looking for a bomb. Maybe he was a spy looking for a a drop. In all seriousness, I thought two, two possibilities here. One is he's got a slight mental health issue and he's actually paranoid about terrorism and he can't get on a train without checking. Two, he's cleaning it? No, two, he's a plainclothes police officer and there is actually a terrorist scare. In either scenario, because actually looking at him, I was like, okay, he looks a bit like a police officer pretending to be a crazy man. Three, he had left something he thought on the train and was trying to find it. Yeah, oh, that's actually more plausible, isn't it? Four, he really likes copies of the Metro. He, <laughs> he, he just wanted a few more. Anyway, it unsettled me. Ooh. I mean, it's, you know, reoccurred in my imagination as soon as I read this question. Oh, so maybe try that. Some intensive looking. Yeah. But on a plane, you might be looking under the seat to see that your life jacket is there. It just behaves oddly and the person will think, that guy's weird, I don't want to talk to him. Surely the best thing to do is to find the thing that 
make strangers talk to you and do the opposite. And that, and that seems How can to be... I turn off my personal magnetism, Martin? Well, it's, uh, it seems to me that being a woman wearing headphones is the thing that makes people talk to you. If, if you just do the opposite of that, be a man not wearing headphones. You see, I would have thought until recent times that wearing massive headphones is the signal for don't bother. You're, you're referring here now to a thing that happened a few weeks ago The, in the modern news. man, but not your modern man, not, it yes. must be said. <laughs> so the only reason I'm vaguely aware of this is because yeah, same people show. kept tweeting me saying, oh my God, Ollie, what have you done? Why are you being man so sexist, two Ollie? Ends, two ends, yeah. critically different. So this gentleman who, who has a website a, called The Modern Man with one end. He was advising that if women are wearing headphones, that is not a fuck off. That is an invitation. That's a, that a challenge. It's, yeah, it's what a just, wonderful hurdle to surmount. It's just a chatty <laughs> challenge. It isn't. If people are wearing headphones, they don't want to chat. It doesn't mean fuck off. Just uh, straight ahead, it's a real baller move. Yeah. And you could also feign sleep. Yeah. Um, because it's a very common sight. People on aeroplanes, even quite short haul, wearing those little eye masks. Yeah. Bring one of those with you. Martin actually made his own one. He tucked a serviette behind his spectacles and he drew like sleeping eyes on it what a great life hack yeah (laughs) oh and that is it for this episode uh we're recording in a secret location and martin keeps spying a mouse there on on the stair (laughs) where on the stair right there um and now that we have uh, almost come to an end he can go and run after the mouse and make friends with it (laughs) i've actually been looking the whole time martin's been distracted by looking at the mouse he keeps interrupting us going it's really little considering he's in a room with his wife is kind of worrying it's a cute i see helen all the time that was a cute little dormouse you're a cute little dormouse, darling. Sorry. No, it's too, too late. late. Too little, too, too late. late. Even I can observe that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, listeners, if you want to send us questions for a future episode of Answer Me This... Then scurry along. Oh, oh. just rubbing in the fact that my marriage is based on the miserable truth that I'm never going to be as interesting to him as a pest. <laughs> don't, don't be as quiet as a mouse. Be as loud as a person when you record your message on Skype or, or uh, via phone. Oh, that's what this show would sound like if Martin hosted it. It's clunky. Uh, so I was looking at a mouse. Yeah, stop it. <laughs> if you want to email, phone or Skype us, you can find all of our contact details on our website. AnswerMeThisPodcast.com uh, Whereupon you can also find links to follow us on Facebook and Twitter uh, and links to the Answer Me This store to buy our first 200 episodes. And our albums. And our apps. Uh, and remember there's an extra special little bit of crap on the app every single episode if you get that. Yes. Uh, and also the link to uh, get your audiobook as well. Uh, and by doing that supporting the show and getting yourself some free content for your ears. That's nice isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we will be back in two weeks. Bye! Bye.